You don't know the name Meredith Whiteley. Meredith Whiteley is, uh, I guess now she's probably about 80 years old, and she has a PhD. She's written several books. She's a pretty intellectual lady, and uh, I was interviewing at a church several years ago, and I was with a group of senior adults in our fellowship hall, and Dr. Whiteley, Meredith looked at me and said, hey, what is your plan for senior adults? And I thought that was the end of her question, so I started to answer. It was, there was a lull, and then she quickly said, and we don't want to bake cookies for your high school students. That's what she said. And I said, Meredith, are you a gal that's pretty candid? And everybody laughed, and I took that as affirmation of my question. And I said, can you receive candor as well? She said, yes, I can. I said, we're going to have a good friendship. And we did. We had a really good relationship. And what she was getting at was this understanding, sometimes that permeates the church, this undercurrent, that once you get to a certain age or if you're in a certain season of life, um, you aren't as functionally significant in the life of the church. It's not true. It's a lie. It's not true. It doesn't matter if you're 170 or 7, that all of us uh, have a place in the church of the living God. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been ushered into the uh, universal church, and the overwhelming amount of instances in the New Testament where the word church is used, it's talking about a local expression, a group of believers, men, women, boys and girls, who come together, and they covenant together, and they want to keep their eyes on Jesus, and you have churches that pop up all over uh, all the place, Graceland Baptist Church, Oak Park Baptist Church, Foothills Baptist Church, Redeemer Baptist Church. And these are local expressions of people who understand that there is one body, Jesus is the head, and there's many parts that make up the body of Christ. And so Paul argues this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, uh, David says in Psalm 133, verse 1, how good is it when brothers... Or sisters dwell in unity. This is a verse that we quote to our kids at times. How good is it? The Father smiles when you aren't uh, being selfish. And, and when, when you dwell in unity, right? So parents will quote Psalm 133. It's not just about family dynamics, but it's about the church. How good is it when brothers dwell in unity? And we're in the second sermon of this sermon series, greater than, greater than the sum of our parts. We're greater than, we're better to and the Bible tells us that we are one body with many members. There's not one all-star. There's not one person that the church rises and falls on. Now, I'm not very athletic. I think it was God's kindness to not give me much athleticism um, because it would have gone to my head. I would have been an arrogant little individual. And um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not very athletic. And so I went to play basketball with some of the people from our church. And I'm six foot three. And Reuben Nesmith, one of our elders, um, he's like eight foot four. And, and somebody said, hey, you, you guard Reuben. Just a tall guy. And Reuben doesn't like to run. He's getting a little older and he doesn't run very fast. But he, he, um, he, he played college basketball. I did not know that. I did not know he played college basketball. I would not have guarded him. I would have guarded somebody else, somebody four foot two. And so I didn't know that. So he's jogging, and I have this kind of covenant. If you don't run, I won't run. It's a great thing to do in basketball. And he says, that sounds great. Well, he got there, and he would get behind the three-point line. I'm like, this joker, he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't look very athletic. And so I was like, he's, he, but he, would, he was draining threes. And it was, it was kind of irritating. Made me look bad. Um, and and I, I haven't played basketball with the high school students and Reuben and Brian Jackson since. He, he played college basketball. So you sh those are things you should tell people 
when you're like, I mean, that's just, I think that was unfair and ungodly of him. There, there's not, there's not like one all-star, right? Like in the church, there's not an all-star. There's not like a Reuben Nesmith of Grace and Baptist Church. It doesn't rise and fall on, on me or Larry or elders. Like Jesus loves our church more than we do. He's committed to the church and there's one body, many parts. And, and I'm not very athletic. I'll tell you the one time where I was really athletic. It was many, many years ago. And my dad was holding a camcorder. Remember what those are? They're like 300 pounds that you hold, and you, they're like a weapon now. And, and I was in the game, and my mom was on the sidelines. And if you know my mom, the word vociferous comes to mind, noisy, clamorous, loud, expressive, in a good way. She's on the sidelines with my dad and got the camcorder, the weapon on their shoulders. And I see three or four defenders, and I'm a little taller than them. And all I think is barrel through them. That's all I think. Well, I barrel through them and I did like a 360 and I took my foot, my left foot, and I skipped the top of the ball. And like Pele or Ronaldo, I went through the three or four people unscathed like a ghost. It was amazing. And my mom was going, magic feet, magic feet. Like I had some magic feet and I've got it and we can watch it on video. We have it. That was my one act of athleticism in my life. So, so I'm not, I've never been, I've never been good at that. In the church, we think the church is like that. You got one guy who calls the shots and everything rises and falls with him. And and, the church is made up of one body. Jesus is the head. We have a lead pastor, Larry Riley. We come under Larry and with our elders and everybody plays a part. We've got members and he works through this metaphor, this analogy of some people are an ear, some people are a foot, some people are a hand, some people are an eye, some people are a nose. And and you, you get the point that we're one body with many members, many parts. So every single person, every single person who's a believer in Jesus Christ, who comes into our church, right? We're all part of the universal church, men and women, boys and girls all around the world that are believers in Jesus, that understand there's no way that I forgive myself of my sins. I need a joy and a hope and a freedom that's not relegated to this world. It's been the world to come. Christ came, heaven came down to us and gave us his life. And when we believe and trust in Jesus, not ourselves, we're forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. And that expresses itself in local church families, bodies. We come together, every single person has a functional significance. Did you like the fact that you had coffee this morning? Okay, did you like the fact that there was little French vanilla capsules? Did you like the fact when you walked into the bathroom, it was clean? I, I, I'm thankful for a clean bathroom. Did you li- do you like the fact that you can drop your kids off, not as a babysitting service, but people who want to give their lives to invest in kids and teach little kids, middle school students, uh, little, little hellions and, and high school students, and point, point them, teach them. You walked into a Sunday school class and somebody had a, a, a lesson prepared. Uh, Pastor Carmen worked diligently with, with this team who do such a great job to lead us in worship through music. Aren't you thankful that there's all these moving parts that make Graceland happen? I mean, there's lots of moving parts. And so Paul, Paul presses this analogy, he talks about a hand, he talks about a foot. Your hand will have ornamentation on there, will be jewelry. Back in the day, you would shake a person's hand to initiate and solidify a contract, right? But feet don't do that, right? My wife said this years ago, and I remember this, but I, I was looking at her last night 
by 11 o'clock, I said, hey, do you remember several years ago you told me that I had ugly feet? She goes, yes, and you do have ugly feet, okay? I don't, they're not like hobbit feet, like lots of hair on them, but they're kind of gnarly. I don't have really beautiful feet. You don't have beautiful feet either. If you do, you're delusional. And so we wear socks and we've got shoes on to hide our feet. Uh, but, the, but the foot could look at the hand of members in the body and look, I want to be the hand. I want to be the ear. I want to be the eye. A hand, you introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Nate. Nice to meet you. Love the name tags, by the way. And, and, and what if you're a foot? You want to go out into the foyer and say, instead of my hand introducing myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my foot. You could do that. We'd welcome you here. We're thankful you're here. It'd be a little awkward. I might avoid you in the foyer, but, but there's, there's a purpose to our hands. There's a purpose to our eyes. There's a purpose to our ears. And every single person in the body has a significance. No one is insignificant. doesn't matter how old you are or young you are. New to the faith, old to the faith, new to the church, old to the church. We all have a part to play in the body of Christ and specifically here at Graceland Baptist Church. So I want to ask, ask four questions, four questions this morning from 1 Corinthians 12. How does unity even happen? Why are we devoting a whole Sunday to talk about unity? How does unity even happen? First question. Second question, what are some unity killers? By the way, the same unity killers that kill unity in the church are probably the same type of unity killers that kill unity in your marriage and your family and your business. So there's lots of transferable truth here, okay? What are some unity killers? How should we fight for unity? How should we fight for unity? And what's the big deal? What's the big deal about Unity. If you have your Bibles or your smartphone, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. It's going to be on the screens, but let's stand together as we read God's Word. Here's what God's Word. And I did this in the first service, but I was the only one reading. So I want you to read along with me, all right? Verses 12 through 13, just two verses. Here's what God's Word says all together. For just as the body is one and has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. This is God's Word to you and to me. May God bless the preaching and the listening of it. You may be seated. So how does unity even happen? How does it even start? Well, Paul says that we've been baptized into one body, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're new to the church and new to the faith, you're like, man, what, is that, what does that even mean? Baptized by the Spirit of God. I think every Christian, every Christian should have two baptisms. We should have a spirit baptism and we should let the world know that we're a believer in Christ by way of water baptism, which happens after you become a Christian, right? You put your wedding band on after you made a commitment to this particular person. In the same way, when you become a believer, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, in him you have believed in Jesus Christ. You believed in what? The gospel of your salvation, the good news of Christ, the message of Christ, the perfect life, the death that you were called to die, that I was called to die, but he died for us. He took our punishment. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, rose again triumphantly over sin because he never sinned, not even once defeated death. Death could not hold him in the grave, praise God. And he ascended to the Father and he's coming back again. When we believe in that truth, 
When we know that we cannot save ourselves, we cannot rescue ourselves from hell and sin and the power of sin, we need a hope and a joy that is timeless, that is sure, that is certain, it is Christ. When we believe upon Christ, the Bible says, the Spirit of God, I don't understand theologically how this all works, but the Bible tells us the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And we're sealed. The Bible says that the mark, the stamp of God's seal is the Spirit of God living in us. He indwells in us and teaches us and convicts us and encourages us and challenges us and reminds us whose we are. How does unity even happen? Unity starts with the fact that we are at odds with God. God is loving and kind and compassionate, but He's holy and will not allow just anyone in heaven. It sounds kind of unjust, but he's the one who created the world. So he is the determiner of what is just and right. And yet he's not only just, he's justified. He provides the way in which sinners like me and you could have a right relationship with him, the God of all creation. And unity happens when we who were once an enemy of God now are brought near by the blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood the Bible says there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding, without the giving of a life. And so Jesus gave us his life. And unity starts first vertically. We have unity in a right relationship with the Father vertically. And then what are we to do? We're to bend that out horizontally. Bend it out. Vertically to bend that out in our life. And then he says, look at verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Then he gives some distinctions, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What's he saying? He's giving some examples of opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got a person who was a slave, a person who was free. You've got a Jew, and you've got a Gentile or a Greek. You, you've got statements. Back in the day, a guy named Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote down that some Jews believed that Greeks or Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. That doesn't sound like a very guest-friendly message, right? Hey, anybody who's not a Jew, you were created to, to fuel the fires of hell. Welcome to Grace, and we, we're so thankful that you're here. <laughs> what he's saying is he's giving an example, and he's talking to saints in Corinth who were not unified. The whole letter of Corinthians is actually uh, a, a refutation, a confrontation of saints, believers, brothers and sisters, who were not living out the gospel. And he takes 1 Corinthians 12, and after that comes 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's not about love. It's about the fact that they weren't actually doing the most excellent way, the way of love. They weren't loving each other. And he says, you've got Jew and you've got Gentile. You've got Jew and you've got Greek. You've got slave and you've got free person. And they're all made to drink of the same spirit. They've got unity with the Father, a relationship with the Father, and they are called to live out their faith in a horizontal fashion and be at peace with one another. Jew and Gentile, slave and free. How does unity happen? It happens as we come to Jesus and the Spirit of God comes and lives within us and enables us to live out our faith in Christ. They are all baptized into one body. There's one body. Christ is the chief shepherd with many parts. We all come together and we have unity in the good news of Christ. How does unity happen? Through Jesus. But what are some unity killers? What are some unity killers? Killers. Let me give you five. I think I gave you five. And I could give you 27, but I'm just going to give you five. An unforgiving spirit. Not believing the best 
about someone, a commitment to preferences over convictions, mistaking people as the enemy, and failing to love well. Okay, I think those are in your listening guide. They're on the screen as well. Let me walk through several of these real, real quickly. What can kill unity in a church is a commitment of someone to not forgive, to be resentful, to be bitter. If you were to look at Proverbs chapter 24, verse 29, here's what Solomon writes. Do not say, I will do to him or I will do to her as they have done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Proverbs tells us, do not do that. Vengeance will always backfire. Cain's sinful resentment mastered him. We see in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, he was envious and resentful and bitter towards his brother Abel. And what did it lead him to do? To take his brother's life. To not be resentful, to not be unforgiving. If someone wrongs you, you start by hoping for that person to be unhappy. Then you might, might graduate and say something and do something to hurt them and those around them. What's happening? The evil that was done to you is beginning to shape you. They've done this to me, and you're going to let them dictate to you, and they're going to control you, and you're going to want to respond in the like manner. I'm not going to forgive them. Why should I forgive them? Look at what they've done to me. Here's, here's a hard truth, an easy truth to understand, but a hard truth to apply. We have offended God in innumerable ways. What we bring to the table in terms of salvation is our sin. We do the sinning, Jesus does the rescuing. We do the acknowledging of our offense, and Jesus does the redeeming and the forgiving. And God through the person of Jesus Christ, because of Christ and his blood, the Bible says that we owe a debt we could not pay. We have a debt we could not pay. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, the Father has canceled our debt of sin, canceled the punishment and the penalty that we owe because of what Christ has done. Who are we to ever look at someone and say, I will not forgive you when a holy, righteous God who deserves every ounce of our allegiance has said to you, you are forgiven. The good news of Christ, by the way, is scandalous. That sinners get off scot-free on account of someone else. When that happens in the news, and we, we read about someone who doesn't get justice, doesn't it, doesn't it make you angry? How did they get off with that? Why'd they let them go? They got off on parole? They got a shorter sentence? My friends, that is us. We get off scot-free and get all the treasures and the promises that are yes and Jesus based upon Jesus. We bring nothing to the table. Jesus brought it all. And we're to be people who want to pursue unity. And one of the things that kills unity is saying, I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm going to hold on to bitterness. I'm going to hold on to resentment. And you know some of those people. Maybe it's you. And they are miserable people. They are miserable people. You might say, well, how do you forgive? You've heard the phrase, you've ever heard the phrase, forgive and forget, right? Forgive and forget. I want to humbly appeal to you. I don't know if that's the most biblically accurate statement. Because forgiveness, based upon the Bible, is transactional. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How does he forgive us? He doesn't just say, 
hey, anybody who wants forgiveness, you don't have to do anything. You can just get it. He actually says you need to repent and believe. You need to acknowledge your offense. You need to acknowledge that you've offended a holy God. And then when we do that and we believe upon Jesus, he gives forgiveness indiscriminately. But there are conditions. It's a transaction. He doesn't just give it to us if we don't acknowledge our offense. If you were to come to my house and say, your wife is annoying. She's, and she's not. She's gorgeous, kind, humble. I can get going on. But if you were to say, hey, your wife's annoying. I don't like her. You call her some names. And then you say, hey, you want to hang out tonight? I say, hey, man, no. No. Why? Because you just, you've insulted me. You've, you've, you've made disparaging comments about my bride. You know what I did? I should not have said that. Please forgive me. I should not have used those words. I was unkind. I, it, was, it was a moment where my mouth was shooting off. And, and I, please, please forgive me. Yes. I forgive you. Transactional, right? The Father does the same thing with us, right? So you say, well, isn't in some sense forgiven, forget biblical? In some sense it is because have you ever forgiven somebody and then it like popped up in your head again? Man, I thought I forgave them. You don't have to do. You have to remind yourself on account of Jesus, I'm going to give you the forgiveness. That is not yours, but I want to continually remind myself. Do you think the Father actually can remember all of our offenses? Of course he can. But based upon the promises of Jesus, he chooses to overlook Nate Milliken's sins because of the shed blood of Christ. So one of the things that can kill unity is, I'm not going to forgive. I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to be bitter. Another action that can kill unity in a church is not believing the best about somebody. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. Love believes all things. He's not saying that you and I should just be gullible or naive. He's, he's speaking the fact that we should give the best. We should think the best of people, that we should operate on faith and not lose hope with anyone or any situation. If we don't have concrete facts that prove that someone else has done something wrong, then we'll always opt for the more, the more favorable possibility and alternative. Anybody struggle with that? In the first service, there were seven. There were seven honest people in the first service. I struggle with giving people the benefit of the doubt. Here's what I say. Maybe you can identify I know why she did that. Oh, I know. I can peer into her heart. I know why he did that. They're power hungry. I know their motives. You do. You do. Nathan, you know people's motives? Like a champ, I do it all the time. And what am I doing? I'm actually assuming the third person of the Trinity, and that actual role is actually already taken by the Spirit of God. And so it's not me. And so one of the things that we need to do is understand love believes all things and unless there's concrete proof as to someone's wrongfulness, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. How hard is that? So hard. But by God's grace, through the work of the gospel and the Spirit of God, I want to believe the best about you. And I want you to believe the best about me. Here's another one. A commitment to preferences over convictions. A commitment to preferences over convictions. A critical spirit. I stopped using, I didn't stop completely, but I stopped using the word conviction to describe my preferences. Really, a lot of times we use the word conviction, but what we should be using is the word preference. I have a strong preference for this, okay? 
And, you know, you know, like wine, wine drinkers will do this. I always think it's comical when I'm watching somebody in a restaurant, they're drinking wine, have no problem with you drinking wine. They're drinking wine and, and, uh, and they'll go, mm. and they'll talk about tannins and how the wine comes down the rim of the glass and how it does quickly or slowly. And they'll talk about the oxygen. I have no idea what they're talking about. And, 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 and like wine connoisseurs, we get Christian church hopper connoisseurs. And we get the wine glass and we put the kids ministry in there. We get the music ministry in there. We get the preaching style. We got ministry initiatives. I didn't like that song. It was sung too slowly. It was sung too quickly. Or it's not new enough. Or it's not old enough. Or it's not theologically robust enough. And what we do is we become critical. And we let preferences supersede truth and doctrine and primary issues. Now, I'm going to preach, Tammy, but let me tell you something. That's me. I do this. I am an agent of disunity many times in my heart. There are things I like. There are songs that I prefer. There's ministries that I like more than others. There are people that I like more than others. And don't be so godly that you don't empathize with me. Like, I'd rather talk to that person. Preferences. And what we do is we elevate preferences to the top and we say, that's what church is about. And church is never about Nate Milliken. It is never about me. It's about Jesus. And one of the things that can kill unity in the church is that we allow preferences to become the driving force in our life. We don't want to let preferences do that. We want to let doctrine and truth and primary issues. And I have grown in this. I've certainly not arrived I've let secondary issues and, and tertiary issues become primary issues, and, and I've created disunity, both as a church member and as, as a leader. And I look back like, man, Lord, please forgive me. I want to be an agent of unity. I don't want to have a commitment of preferences over convictions. And even in our church, even in our church, uh, things have changed the last couple years. Like there's different initiatives We've got this Palmyra campus. Um, we're, we're talking about a, another campus launch in the coming weeks and months. Uh, Pastor Larry has a vision to, to reach our region for Jesus, and it means that we might be uncomfortable and inconvenient and give up dollar bills and give up stage time, and we're going to really be about not so much our geographical footprint here. We are going to continue to be about here, but we want to see how can we reach people for Jesus Christ, and if it means starting planting and, and launching campus, if it's going to see people ushered into the kingdom of God, Larry's vision is there should be an urgency in our hearts, and you might say, well, that's not my preference. Again, it's not about me. It's not about you. What can we do to tell a world that needs hope and joy and freedom and forgiveness and peace? Where can they find it? In Christ. And we want to be unashamedly committed to that. It's a, it's a methodology. It looks different here than it looks different than other churches, but that's one of the things we're throwing a stake in the ground and we're going to be about that. We don't want to be about preferences. We want to be about convictions, things that we die for. Would you die for your preference of a song? I hope not. Would you die for your preference over preaching style? I hope not. Would you die for your preference over a minister? I hope not. Would you die for the deity of Jesus? Would you die for the fact that there really is a heaven or hell? Would you die for the fact that salvation, freedom is really free and you don't have to work and you rest in the finished work of Christ? Those are the things that are convictional. All right? Those are the things that should really matter. Fourthly, we mistake people as the enemy, right? You wanna, we want to be people of unity, 
But oftentimes we think that he's, he's the enemy or she's the enemy. You know the verse in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but of principalities, that there really is demonic forces at work in our world wanting to undermine and bring discord and disunity to our country, to our churches, to families, to the world. And I've, I know that verse, but for the longest time, I thought people who didn't want to follow my leadership, I thought people who, who questioned me, I thought people who challenged me, I thought people who didn't like me, like they were the problem. The Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That look to your neighbor, look to your left, go ahead and do it, look to your right, go ahead and do it. Say, you're not the enemy. You're, say, you're, not, you're not the enemy. Now, I thought early on in our marriage, um, I, I thought my bride was the enemy. Somebody said, careful, okay. Huh. I'm, off, I'm off script here. My wife's starting to sweat. What's he going to say? <clears throat> and early on, I thought, I thought she's, she's the enemy. And I realized, no, I'm allowing the devil to work in our marriage. And, I'm, and I'm, I've been an agent of relational conflict. I've not been kind. I've not been gentle. You and I are not the enemy. There's a very real devil that roams the earth, 1 Peter 5, looking for whom he may devour, and he wants to bring disunity to your marriage, disunity to your family dynamic, disunity to your place of business, disunity to our church. He wants to bring disunity, and oftentimes he does a great job because we think you're the enemy, I'm the enemy. One of the ways to kill unity is the mistake that people are the enemy. Fifthly, fail to love well. One of the ways that we will see disunity is that we will fail to love people well. And what I mean by that is unchecked sin in people's lives. We want to be truth tellers in the context of love givers, right? Speak the truth in love. Jesus was the master expert at this who always showed boldness without harshness. He was humble without shirking the truth. You ever notice when he, when he talks to, even in John 8, uh, the woman who's caught in adultery, bring, and they, they bring her to Jesus? We always want to focus on the fact that Jesus loved her, but you know what Jesus said to her? Go and sin no more. He loved her. He didn't condemn her like the religious leaders did and were about to stone her. But Jesus, simultaneously, is humble and gentle and kind yet he is inevitably insistent upon truth. We want to hold the balance. We want to be truth tellers in the context of love. So how does unity happen? Through the Spirit of God, as we believe upon Jesus, he comes and dwells in us. We have a right relationship with the Father that we want to bend out with each other. I have a right relationship with God, and I want to have a right relationship with you. What are some unity killers? We've walked through those. How do we fight for unity? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, this verse. He says these words. It's on the screens as well. Verse 3, be eager to maintain or make every effort or to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of all who is over all and through all. How do we fight for unity, how do we make every effort to contend for unity, to be eager to preserve unity? How do we do that? I think we need to remember our diagnosis and our cure. 
our diagnosis and our cure. Here's what one pastor said. The Bible calls believers and followers sheep. And sheep wander because they're sheep. It's in their nature to do so. And our wandering away problem is deeper than moments of choice and behavior. It's deeper than that. Our problem is a matter of nature. The problem is inside of us, something with which we were born with that causes us to wander away from the good and wise will of Jesus. And the Bible names it as sin. What does sin cause us to do? It causes us to make life all about us, to want our own preferences, to be little self-sovereigns, to not be agents of unity, but to be agents of disunity. But a Christian... A son, daughter of God, a believer, follower of Christ is someone who lays down our preferences, lays down our rights, and even lays down our life. We give up our life to find life in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did that, who had every right to champion his preferences, who had every right to demand absolute allegiance and everything that he did. What does he do? He laid down his life. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a sinner's criminal's cross. And what did God do? He exalted him and gave him the name that is above everything, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he laid down his life, and Christians should be people who laid down our lives, not be about our preferences. So what's the solution? We've got sin in us. We know the diagnosis. What's the cure? Systems of behavior aren't going to work. Or attempting to reform our behavior. I'll stop getting drunk. I'll stop cussing. I'll stop looking at images on a screen. I'll stop caring so much about money and my image and prestige and influence. I'm going to start to reform myself. Our problem is deeper than behavior. Systems of self-help because we are our own biggest problem. There's only one place to run for help. There's only one cure to our diagnosis, and it's only ever found in God's redeeming grace, the grace that placed our iniquity on Jesus so that we could be both forgiven and healed is more powerful than our sinful natures. Our cure is not a system, it is a person that's found in Christ. So how do you fight for unity? When you understand who you once were, and you understand what you've been given in Jesus, when you understand what you've been given in Jesus, all my rights and preferences pale in comparison to what God has done for me in Christ. So why? That's why Paul continually comes back to the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. We know how the gospel teaches us about unity, but how does the gospel teach us about immorality in 1 Corinthians 7. He continually goes back. How does immorality, how is it influenced by the gospel? Well, what is immorality? You want something or someone more. You lust after something. But the gospel says there is something more beautiful, more powerful, something that we should treasure more than images on a screen or that person that, who's not your spouse that you, they walk into the room and your heart begins to, ooh, what do you do? I can tell you to stop, stop, stop. You can put accountability. But at the end of the day, what you need is something more beautiful, more grand, more awesome. What about a lawsuit? He talks about lawsuits in 1 Corinthians. A lawsuit is, I'm going to demand my right. But when you understand that God, who demanded everything and had every right to demand our allegiance, and on account of Christ, he let us go, it's not as if there's not a right time and place 
but you don't want to propound your own rights all the time. This is what I deserve. Paul talks about the gospel informing our understanding of unity. And why is unity such a big deal? Unity is a big deal because it is Jesus' body. One body, Jesus as the chief shepherd, and we are all parts of his body. And when Paul was going, Saul at the time was going to persecute Christians, he's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him. What did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What, what do you mean persecuting you? He was persecuting God's people, Christians. And Jesus says, you are harming me. You're persecuting me as you do this to my sons and daughters. When we are divisive, when we're not agents of unity, it's not just that we have relational fallout. We're doing it to the bride of Jesus, the family of Jesus, his body. It's really serious. We want to take unity of the utmost seriousness and unity within diversity. We want to tell a world that's so diverse that you can come into the church in red, yellow, black, and white, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or I don't care, rich, poor, tall, short, basketball athlete, non-basketball athlete, educated, non-educated, theologically astute, not theologically astute, red, yellow, black, and white, you come into the church and despite all our differences, our languages, our ethnicities, we have unity even with all our diversity. Why? Because of Jesus. Now, Last night, I went to dinner with my parents. I thought it was just my parents. My bride and I met them at Havana Rumba, a little Cuban cuisine, really good in Louisville. And I told my parents, my parents said, hey, what do you want for your birthday? I'm, st- I'm like 38, but I still want something for my birthday, okay? So they said, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I either want gray boots, a kayak, or a guitar. And I was hoping they'd get all three. They got me one. And, and uh, we're at dinner, and... My sister flew in from D.C. to surprise me, and all these servers come out, and they're singing, and I've got the, the, the flan. It was awesome. And, and she handed me a guitar. I thought it was props to the whole, like, Cuban um, thing. But no, here's your guitar. And this lady said, hey, she's at the table next. Hey, you got a guitar. You're going to play for us. And I said, I cannot play guitar. I don't know how to play guitar. But here's what I was thinking, Pastor Carmen, wherever you are. I was thinking, you're in the back. I was thinking, I got a guitar, and I would be like, you ever notice Tim? Like, Tim's, Tim's a cool brother. He's got, like, doing his little thing here. I thought, maybe I'm going to get my guitar. I can't play. But this is the chance for me to show my skills. On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm a negative 2. With some tutelage, with some training from Pastor Carmen, Monday through Friday in the office, with some blood, sweat, and tears, I'm going to go from a negative 2 to a 1.7. But I'm, gonna get, I'm never going to be on stage, ever, because I don't have the skills. I don't have the, God's not given me that gift. He's given it to Pastor Carmen. It's incredibly irritating because he can sing well. He plays multiple instruments. God's gifted him. And God's gifted you in particular ways. We are a diverse group of people, and we come together, and we're one family. Unity within diversity.